0: All right, Dr. Sherman. Okay. Um, so, as you heard, I'm a hepatologist. Uh, you could tell that because we are always appropriately overdressed for the audience that, uh, that we address because that's our uniform. These are my disclosures. And this is what we're going to do today: talk about progression of liver fibrosis, methods to stage it, uh, features of decompensated liver disease, and when do you send patients to a transplant center? So, let's get started with this. So, hepatic fibrosis or scarring is is the liver's response to an injury, and uh, and there's many things that can cause that response. Obviously, hepatitis viruses, which is what we're concerned with today, uh, but also fat in the liver associated with the development of NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Alcohol, which causes a state called alcoholic steatohepatitis that is, at least histologically, indistinguishable from NASH. Uh, There are various inherited metabolic disorders that are present uh, in about 7% of the U.S. population, and you should at least uh, be aware that there are such things out there. Uh, Many drugs can cause hepatotoxicity, including in some settings the drugs that we're using to treat hepatitis C. Uh, Things like like megadose vitamins. Excess vitamin A wakes up the, the stellate cells that make scar in the liver and says, start making scar, start making collagen. And so we always need to ask our patients about that. There are various cholestatic disorders. Uh, I'll mention some of those in a minute and uh, various immune disorders of the liver that can lead to fibrosis. when When a hepatologist talks about a patient with liver disease, the first thing we do is Classify the pattern of injury, and we divide it broadly into hepatocellular injury, which is characterized by elevation of ALT and AST, and cholestatic injury, which is primarily increases in bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, and GGT. Um, and uh, there are a few things that are mixed injuries, but uh, but. In general, we need to start by looking at a patient defining these things. Now, you might say, well, but don't patients with a viral hepatitis become jaundiced? And wouldn't that be cholestatic? And the answer is yes, but the primary injury is hepatocellular. And then in the recovery phase, we see what's called a post-hepatitic cholestasis, and sometimes in a clinical setting, that's hard to sort out because one looks like the other, and uh, and if you're confused, that's you, that's just the nature of things. Sometimes it's hard to tell where a patient is in their disease process, which means it's hard to define uh, what is the disease process that's causing an issue. We also need to talk about the concept briefly of acute versus chronic. Uh, we arbitrarily draw a line at around six months and say anything that persists longer than six months is chronic; less than six months is acute. And later, one of the cases Dr. Nagy is going to present today will be a discussion of acute hepatitis C, and uh, and. So, you should at least have that framework in mind of what do we mean when we say acute. You all see labs that include ALT and uh, your lab typically give you a normal value range, which often ranges from around 5 to 45 to 55 on the upper end. And for most people, uh, looking at a patient's labs, what makes them start thinking about liver disease is when when the ALT is above your local laboratory normal range. But the problem is those normals are not defined by disease. In clinical laboratories, they're a statistical measure uh, based upon a survey of a supposedly normal population. in my institution, there is this crazy paradox. Our laboratory uses uh, executive physical samples collected at executive physicals uh, to determine normal ranges. They collect 100 samples and they do all of their tests every two years determining the normals based upon statistical measures from that group. Why are the people getting executive physicals getting executive physicals? It is because they may have disease that is yet undiagnosed, and so there's. it's crazy. You take people that might have a disease and then you call them the normals. So, we've come to understand that, in fact, there are true normals for ALT. It's, it's less than 19 for women, less than 30 for men. If you see ALTs above that, your patient has liver injury. So, even though your lab is telling you that the ALT is normal, if you see numbers by, by the sex of that patient uh, above those levels, you should assume there's injury going on. It's particularly important in the setting of hep C because I can't tell you how many times over my career I have had patients come in, uh, a woman whose ALT has been running 40 to fifty and uh, has known about hepatitis C for a decade, 15 years, and has been told by their primary care f- provider that everything's fine. We know you have Hep C, but your liver's fine because the ALT says it's normal. And in fact that person is burning through liver cells at about twice the normal rate and in response to that, they're developing scar in their liver. So how do we know if a patient has scar in the liver? We're going to look at scar, and then I'm going to say a few words about fat in the liver as well, because that's sort of an emerging issue, something that people are starting to think a lot about. So for hepatic fibrosis, the type of injury determines the pattern, meaning where does the scar get laid down, what does it look like? For most diseases, the distribution is homogeneous throughout the liver. Uh, Though early in disease, it can be spottier. Inflammation, uh, the presence of inflammatory cells in the liver, is transient. uh, But fibrosis is plastic. However, it doesn't change quickly. So when we cure a patient of hep C, the, the inflammation goes away quickly but the scar takes years and years to resorb and eventually can even resolve, but we may be talking a decade or more in most patients. Cirrhosis is a histologic diagnosis. It is not technically a clinical diagnosis. In the United States, about 80% of patients who have evidence of decompensated liver disease, it's because of cirrhosis. And so we've come to use those terms interchangeably. But that's not true every place in the world. Uh, uh, if you're in the Nile River Valley, the leading cause of bleeding varices is not, is not viral hepatitis, it's just a somiasis. Um, and in most of those patients, their liver is functioning just fine. So this is a schematic representation of stages of liver disease. Um, I put this slide up because we're going to look at actual liver biopsy in a moment, but uh, because there are various scoring systems that are used by pathologists and they're not the same. So if you happen to have gotten a report of a liver biopsy, it's important to not just know a number. It's important to know what system they're using because the numbers, as you can see, don't always line up with each other. Uh, and which system used is used is very regionally dependent, usually where the pathologist was trained. So the, the BATS Ludwig system is big in the upper Midwest. Uh, came from Mayo Clinic. Um, the Ishaq system, Kamal Shack was one of my mentors, and uh, he was in Washington, D.C., so the East Coast tends to use uh, the Ishaq system. The simplest system that's used in comparison uh, to a lot of the non-invasive tests is the Medivir system, which came from Europe, and it basically defines four stages. So. Again, it's important to be aware that there's different systems and not assume that simply a number defines your outcome or what, you're, what you have. These are stages of liver disease. In general, a healthy liver in, on an H&E stain uh, or a trichrome stain is mostly pink. Uh, there's just a little tiny bits of blue which represent collagen matrix in some areas. Uh, over time, because of scarring, we begin to see a little bit more blue, and this would be a Metavir F1. This is a skip a stage here, and this is a Metavir F3. And, and if you can imagine, these are called bridges, these lines, and so it's bridging fibrosis is a term that's often used. Uh, to define Metavir stage 3, or the beginning of what we generally refer to as advanced liver disease. So through today, as we present cases, we might say the patient has advanced liver disease, and that generally means F3 on the Metavir scheme, or F4, which is cirrhosis. When you have a liver lobule completely surrounded by scar, even though not all of them are, then the patient is cirrhotic. Why is that important? Why, why make that distinction? Because when a patient enters these two stages, they begin to impede blood flow through the liver. And at Metavir F4 cirrhosis, that starts to become much more prominent, leading to physiologic changes that we actually associate with symptomatic end-stage liver disease. Now, this shows you the problem that you could see what a difference the size of a biopsy can make. If this was the only piece you were looking at in this cirrhotic liver, you would say that patient is not cirrhotic by looking at that biopsy, because there's no complete nodule surrounded by scar. And so, people have said over the years that, that liver biopsy is a tarnished gold standard. Uh, I would argue that it's not a tarnished gold standard. The problem is that you can't interpret an inadequate biopsy to make a correct determination of what the pathology is. And This gives an example of that. This is uh, three biopsies, three different places. Um, This is one of my biopsies. Uh, I like big fat liver biopsies that uh, give us lots of information. Uh, this is a biopsy that used a smaller needle, so the width is smaller, but uh, there's a lot of length to it, and so you can generally determine what you need to determine from that. Even though you, it's harder to see a fully uh, a fully a, a nodule that's completely surrounded by scar. And then this is a biopsy from. That was done by a radiologist and uh, and an institution we won't name, John Hopkins, <laughs> and uh, and it's inadequate. It you cannot make a diagnosis from it. Um, In recent years, we've tried very hard to begin to move away from biopsy. and We've certainly done that. I mean, in my institution at our peak, we were doing 2,000 biopsies a year. In my peak year, I did 530 biopsies. We did 200 biopsies last year. That shows you how much things have changed. And part of the reason is that we have technology like this that is called transient elastography. This, this in particular is a fiber scan machine. There's other uh, manufactured machines that will give you similar results that measure liver stiffness. They send a sound wave into the liver, they measure how rapidly sound moves down and shakes the liver, and then they record the bounce back of, of that wave, the velocity of that wave. <laughs> And the best analogy for this, um, although it is almost becoming anachronistic, if you have ever made a bowl of jello, because now people just buy cups of jello, but if you have ever made a bowl of jello, if you make it in a bowl and you tap the side, it jiggles. And if you leave it uncovered in your refrigerator for one to two days, you get sort of a crust on top. And if you tap the side, it doesn't jiggle. It's become stiff. Transient elastography is measuring the jiggle, the stiffness of the liver. And the amount of stiffness is directly related to the proportion of scar. And with that, we can estimate the amount of scarring in the liver. This is what it actually looks like on a report. Uh, You get an image of, of, make sure you're seeing liver. You get a slope of this line, and that slope is actually a measurement of the velocity of the return, which is a measurement of the stiffness of the liver in a unit called kilopascals, KPA. How many people here now have access to FibroScan? Oh, that is amazing, because uh, when we were here two years ago, Virtually no one in Arkansas had uh, access to it. So that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, The machine also gives us some other measurements. Uh, One is CAP, which is an estimate of the amount of fat in the liver. And again, fat is becoming more important, and so it's something that uh, we should at least talk about a little bit sometime today. Um, The cutoffs are arbitrary and and you see that these lines are are blended colors. The further you are along, the closer you are to being into the next stage until you get to the prediction of cirrhosis. We typically talk about 12.5 kilopascals as being cirrhotic Uh, and you usually are. But you may not be, and if you want to be really sure, then at 14 and 15 kilopascals, you're really sure that that patient is cirrhotic. Uh, However, because of this some degree of inaccuracy, we tend to start treating patients like they're cirrhotic any time they're over about 10.5 or so. So again, the numbers, the cutoffs are not written in stone. They're meant to be used with clinical judgment in making a decision about how you're going to treat and manage that patient. There is MR elastography. Anyone here have access to MR elastography? Okay. Um, It's more accurate than the sound-based elastography. It gets uh, bigger view of the liver. It's also incredibly expensive. It costs in our place more than getting a liver biopsy, and so it's not something we routinely use in practice. Um, But it is a non-invasive test, and it's somewhat more accurate. Uh, We used to think it was a lot more accurate than the sound-based technologies, but as we get larger and larger data sets, it looks like that's probably not true. We also have various flavors of biochemical tests that involve sampling blood in some manner and determining if fibrosis or cirrhosis is present. Uh, This is from one of the original papers way back in 2001 that led to the development of FibroTest, which in the United States is sold as a proprietary test called FibroSure. Do people here use FibroSure? not so much. One, two, okay. Um, and you could see that, that it's very good if you had two patients and one had cirrhosis and the other one had nothing in terms of excess scarring. Separating those two works very, very well. When you get to fine grade comparisons between stages in the middle, it doesn't work quite as well. The interpretation of these is shown here. Typically, uh, uh, anything over about 0.74 is considered cirrhosis. If you want to be really sure, then over 0.8 absolutely is cirrhosis, and it's extremely accurate, but we are always trading off between uh treating the patient as if, because that's the worst case scenario, and so frequently around 0.72 is when we start saying, oh, we need to begin to think about this patient as a cirrhotic patient. If you don't have any of those available to you, you can use tests that involve just the use of common uh, laboratory information. And of the various ones, and there's several, APRI, AAR, uh, FORNs test, FIB4 is the most accurate in general practice. It uses age, platelet count, AST, and ALT. And, and we should ask why for each of those, because, because actually none of these are measures of fibrosis or scarring. So age is simply based on the concept that as you get older with a disease like hep C and the assumption that you got it at some time in the remote past, you're more likely to have scar. Platelet count is the closest you get to an actual measure, uh, at least indirectly, of portal hypertension, which is reflection of fibrosis, as pressures go up because blood can't move through the liver due to scarring, the first thing that happens in most people is the spleen gets enlarged. And enlarging spleen leads to taking out platelets. Platelet count drops. And in fact, that's a very good clue for you looking at a patient. If you see a patient at or near your laboratory's limit of normal, around 150-160,000, You should be thinking, I wonder if this patient has early cirrhosis or pre-cirrhotic state because their spleen has started to get a little bit bigger. You plug it into a formula, it's available on your phone, and uh, then the interpretation is if that number is greater than 3.25, it's considered to be advanced fibrosis and we treat that patient as if they're cirrhotic. How good are these tests? Well, here's a comparison showing discordance, misclassification, and you could see that that all of the non-invasive tests, this includes uh, Fib4, FibroScan, and uh, um, FibroSure, and uh, they sort of fall apart in the middle, but at the extremes, they're pretty good. So, your patients will ask you, oh, I have hep C. What does that mean? Am I dying? And the answer is, you, you need to be able to answer it in terms of the rates of fibrotic progression. So, patients progress at different rates, and, and it's, while there are characteristics that affect that, Uh, things that help you in any one patient. Unless you have two points separated by time in between, with good measurements of some sort, it's very difficult to tell that patient uh, whether or not they are rapidly progressing or slowly progressing. We know that certain processes like HIV can be associated with fast progression. This study from Johns Hopkins Uh, looked at a cohort of untreated patients with low levels of fibrosis, followed them for a median time of just under three years, and 25% progressed up to two stages, showing how fast progression can occur. A few words about fat. This is a fatty liver. This is what we see in the obesity epidemic in America. The liver is a way station for the storage of fat. So you eat, your liver becomes fatty. The fat gets mobilized, sent to other places in your body uh, in various forms to be utilized. You have too much. The body does it elsewhere. It says, no, thank you. I'm going to store it a little bit longer here while I work on filling up the uh, central obesity depot. Uh, which takes a little longer to process, and so uh, the liver becomes the way station. That is not a disease by itself in the sense that it doesn't cause permanent injury. So fat is not a disease, and that's important because a lot of people have fat. There's a staging system that uh, we can use. Uh, I'll show you a little bit more about that, but this is the relationship if you have a fibro scan that was built in the last two years, uh, which I'm sure is what you have here because you didn't have it two years ago, it has CAP in it, and there's various cutoffs that are used. This is what we're using for interpretation uh, with the assumption that when you get to stage 2 or stage 3 fat, you begin to have an increased chance that you actually have inflammation with that fat, and that's what we call steatohepatitis. This is a patient with NASH with steatohepatitis. You see this lattice-like pattern. It's called chicken wire fibrosis. um, And uh, this is is the characteristic pattern of NASH-associated scarring in the liver, which is a little different than what we saw with hepatitis C. Some patients that we see have both, and it's hard to tell that if you don't have a liver biopsy. We're not doing liver biopsies, but you at least need to be aware of that. This is what it looks like when it gets to cirrhosis. Again, nodule, and actually in many parts of the liver, the level of fat goes down. So a very late-stage NASH cirrhotic liver actually has no fat at all in it and there scoring systems that are used to define this, but unfortunately, today when we're looking for NASH, we're actually starting to increase our liver biopsies again because, because the non-invasive tests don't encompass the information needed to fully characterize if a person has just fat or do they have actual NASH. Okay, the last couple of minutes, what do you need to know about complications of cirrhosis? when a patient becomes cirrhotic, they decompensate at a rate of about 5% per year. So when you have the patient that says, Doc, am I going to die because you just told me I'm cirrhotic, the answer is, well, at the end of 10 years, 30 to 50 percent of you are going to show signs and symptoms, or people like you would show signs and symptoms of end-stage liver disease. Once you show signs and symptoms of end-stage liver disease, the median life expectancy is three years. So that's how I answer to my patients. And I tell them, here's where you're at and here's where you could head, and that's why we need to do something. What is decompensation? So you all need to know these definitions. The presence of ascites, which can itself have these other complications, presence of encephalopathy, bleeding varices, not just having varices, but bleeding varices because portal hypertension causes varices and coagulopathy which is various definitions there's actually no agreed upon absolute definition people generally say an INR greater than between 1.5 and 1.7 indicates the presence of decompensated liver disease people also talking about talk about staging systems and so you need to know that there is there's two systems you actually need to know one is the C TP, the Childs Turco Pew System, which uses these characteristics, bilirubin, albumin, the INR, presence or absence of encephalopathy, and presence or absence of ascites, gives you a cumulative score which lets you classify patients as A, B, or C. Why do you need to know that? Well, in general, Bs and Cs are decompensated cirrhotics that you should not be treating alone. A's are okay for you to treat, but you need to then know, when does an A become B. We also use the MELD score, which is the model for end-stage liver disease, and we use this mainly to determine time to start thinking about transplantation. It's another formula. You can get it on your smartphone. It uses bilirubin creatinine and INR. And so, an example, a patient with a creatinine of 1.6, Billy 1.4, INR 1.6, has a MELD of 17. And that means that that patient's estimated three-month mortality is 18%. That's higher than most cancers when they put patients into hospice. Yet, these patients may not look sick, but they are sick, and that's why calculation of MELD is important for you as a signal that, wow, this person is sick. I need to get them to a transplant center sooner rather than later. When do you refer to transplant? Any sign of hepatic decompensation, ascites, encephalopathy, or variceal bleeding, a MELD greater than 10, or any suggestion that the patient has liver cancer. How do you find liver cancer? We ultrasound every six months. It is subjective. Experience in doing those ultrasounds matters. Um, We also do typically AFPs, though they are not recommended by consensus guidelines in the ASLD, uh, but most hepatologists use it in conjunction with the ultrasounds every six months, not so much for the raw number, but for the change in number, because a big change in number should provoke you to do further looking for a tumor. So in summary, HCV is also a liver disease. You should always ask when you see a patient, is advanced fibrosis present? If yes, that patient needs to start surveillance for varices with EGD, for ascites and hepatocellular carcinoma with ultrasound. And if you find any evidence of decompensation, that's when you need to contact a transplant center. I'll stop there. Thank you.